Well, good morning again, uh, Uptown family. Um, it's great to be back here, and uh, it's even, even, even going to be more great when we get to see you uh, in person uh, pretty soon. So I uh, so much appreciate uh, our missionary partner, John White, and his wife, Stella, um, and thanks to you, John, for giving us that uh, informative update on what's happening with your family and uh, what's happening in the Ukraine. And so it's in that spirit that I'd like to, uh, to pray uh, for the things that John uh, lifted up. And uh, we're going to have more of our missionaries do these video updates as, uh, uh, for real moments um, as they uh, come uh, back to stateside. So... Please join me in, in prayer uh, for John and Stella, and as well as uh, the, the message today. Gracious Heavenly Father, you told us to simply ask, ask you for the nations, to give us the nations as an inheritance. And so that's what we do, Lord, because... It was with the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you purchased men for God. And so we lift up John and Stella to you right now. We pray that uh, you would bless their family, bless Eddie as he um, continues on through schooling. And we pray for John and the staff at World Venture. Give them wisdom and understanding, Lord, as they cast a vision for the cities in the Ukraine. Lord, because your word says, seek the welfare of the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so we pray that you would uh, give the saints there in the Ukraine, especially the administrators, the faculty, and the staff at the Ukraine Theological Seminary, and John and Stella and the rest of the staff, wisdom and they, as they seek to mobilize and equip the saints there to do the work of the, the ministry to spread the gospel to its cities and to its villages and countryside. Lord, give them abundant favor, especially during this time of the pandemic. You would provide every resource, that you would meet every need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the message now that it is in that spirit of mission and service and suffering uh, that I lift up these words to you, Lord, and let these words be your words and not mine. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would accomplish the purpose for which your word is sent today. Minister to your, to your saints today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today's passage comes on the heels of Paul's call to the Philippians to unite in love and humility and to follow the example set by our Lord Jesus Christ himself in verses 5 to 11. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brian Price 
preached powerfully on verses 12 to 18, which encourages the saints to live as lights in the world through faith and obedience. Well, in today's passage, Paul gives us two examples of Christ's faithful servants in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I begin to read in verses 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Among Paul's many co-workers, and he had many, was young Timothy, who was an, av- who was an early protege and became like a son, a surrogate son to Paul. Timothy was first mentioned in Acts, 5, Acts 16, 1-5, when Paul discovered him during his second missionary journey through Asia Minor. The Apostle Luke recorded that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman in Acts 16, who along with her mother, uh, who along with her mother may have been led to Christ during Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra, up in the Galatia region. Timothy had a Greek father, and though by Jewish law, Timothy was considered Jewish because his mother was Jewish. Nevertheless, because Paul's Jewish heritage was an important part of his Christian witness, he went ahead and had Timothy circumcised. This was necessary if Timothy was to join Paul in his mission because he didn't want to dwell on the non-essentials and be a stumbling block to his Jewish audience. Listen to that. Paul was concerned that uh, the listeners' ears and the listeners would not be dwelling on the non-essentials. I mean, we spend a lot of time on the non-essentials in today's churches. You know, the style of music, you know, the number of songs to be played in a service, the color of the chairs, the color of the choir robes, the style of preaching, the non-essentials. Paul didn't want to dwell on that. He wanted to get to the heart of the gospel. And Paul's ministry always began in the synagogues. And having an uncircumcised Jew with him would have made any witness to the Jews that much more difficult because they would have known of Timothy's mixed Jewish-Greek family background. And what exactly was their mission Paul's and Timothy's. Well, Acts 16.4 says, As they went on their way through the cities, 
They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased, they increased in numbers daily. The decisions that are referenced here go back to the previous chapter in Acts 15 where the hardliners in the Jerusalem church try to make it difficult for Gentiles to become Christians. How do you, you know, how, how many of you know the hardliners are still here in churches today? Okay, they make it very hard for people to come to Christ by throwing up Rules and regulations, left and right. So many of them had come to faith, these Gentiles had come to faith, had come to faith during Paul and Barnabas in their first missionary journey. So to stir up trouble for these early believers, the conservative Jewish Christians argued that Gentiles needed to become Jews and follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be Christians. So the leaders in the Jerusalem church held a conference to discuss the conditions for Gentile membership in the church. And after much debate, James agreed with Peter. I'm referring here to the the conference in Acts 15. James agreed with Peter that they should not trouble the Gentiles with the Jewish ritual laws. However, The Gentile Christians would still have contact with the Jewish Christians who still kept the ceremonial provisions. Hence, to avoid giving unnecessary offense, get that, to avoid giving unnecessary offense because we don't need to do that, the apostles agreed the Gentile Christians should abstain from eating food offered up to idols or meat with blood in it or from strangled meat, and abstain from sexual immorality. Because the the Gentiles were so corrupted at that time that they did not have a very high standard of sexual purity. They didn't have any standards. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Corinthian church to know, okay? Incest was in style, okay? Uh, Prostitution was in style. These were the decisions that Paul, accompanied by Timothy, reported to all the churches which he planted on his first missionary journey throughout Galatia. And Luke reported in Acts 16.5 that the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Well, we can see in today's passage that there was much love and affection in the personal relationship between these co-workers, these co-laborers, and the early church which they planted. Verse 20 in Philippians 2, I'm reading from verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Don't these words echo Paul's earlier encouragement for believers to do nothing out of pride or self-conceit and not look out merely for their own self-interests? 
But they were to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, who modeled the service-centered life. Timothy became a natural extension of Paul's ministry to the churches. As Paul sent them ahead to Corinth, Ephesus, and of course Philippi, the church which sent Paul this letter. Paul had the utmost confidence in entrusting Timothy with weighty responsibilities of leading churches and defending the faith that was delivered once for all unto all the saints. And Paul knew intuitively, instinctively, that Timothy would not represent Paul's interests or that of Christ Jesus. That is a rare commodity, especially in today's age. Loyalty, faithfulness, I mean, these are just old-fashioned values that's really hard to find. But it's absolutely critical in Christ's followers. We are to imitate these examples of the faith. Timothy readily surrendered whatever personal ambitions he had in order to support Paul in his missionary activity. Doing so, he showed a selfless concern for others that matched Paul's own eagerness to spend and be spent for the people he was trying to reach. Billy Graham once said, the highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. Unselfish Christian service. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and the helpless. That was Timothy. Next, Paul communicates his friendship and affection towards another person. A person who was instrumental without him, we wouldn't have this letter. This person was instrumental in delivering this letter on behalf of the Philippian church to Paul. I read from verses 25 to 30 of chapter 2. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Because this was a self-quarantine, a self-financed quarantine, the Philippian church showed their concern for their former church leader, Paul, by sending him a gift through this servant, Epaphroditus, who risked his own life in coming to Paul. The church sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul, 
and he suffered an almost fatal illness in his anxiety to serve this beloved leader. I want to spend the remainder of this message focusing on Paul's view of suffering as a normal feature of Christian existence and an essential part of missions. See, I just did a hoodwink on you. The title of the message you saw was A Service-Centered Life, but I'm changing the topic midstream here. You can call it suffering in service and suffering in missions because that's, that's the whole motif. That's, the, that's Paul's theme throughout his letters, including uh, Philippians. He mentions in verse 30 that Epaphroditus nearly died ministering to him. Well, in chapter 1, last month, we saw how Paul describes this pattern and suffering in the community he addresses. Paul tells the Philippians, God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for Him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that I saw, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That's Philippians 1, 29 to 30. Here, we note that suffering is ordained by God. Suffering is as much a part of the Christian experience as the divine And the church's suffering is explicitly parallel to the same struggle that Paul has. And I have to give credit to Dr. Robert Plummer for doing this exposition. In Philippians 1, Paul defines his struggle as the persecution and imprisonment that he has faced for his proclamation of the gospel. That's in Philippians 1, 12 to 13. Well, Paul assumes that the non-believers surrounding the Philippian Christians, they were aware of their faith. They were offended by those Christians, and that is why they faced persecution. There were no secret Christians in Philippi. The non-believers spotted them out, called them on it, and persecuted them. So Paul consistently assumes that the Philippian believers' allegiance to Christ would be found out by their non-believing neighbors. So the question goes for us, how many of our non-believing neighbors around us would find us guilty of being Christians? This fact is probably one of the most significant reasons that we do not find more explicit injunctions to evangelism in Paul's letters. It was an assumption. The early churches did not need to begin making their faith known so much as they needed to continue to adhere to their confession of faith and to confirm that faith through their holy behavior. Their holy behavior is what made them stick out like sore thumbs. Remember what I said about the sexual promiscuity of that period. We should also note that in 
the Philippian correspondence, Paul reports that his personal suffering has resulted in two outcomes, two auspicious outcomes. Number one, more people have heard of the gospel through Paul's suffering, which has brought widespread attention to his message. Again, in Philippians 1, and then he goes on later to say, the entire household of Caesar has heard the gospel that he was spreading through those guards who were watching him. And the second outcome was that most of the believers in the letters, city of origin, Philippi, they are now emboldened, emboldened by Paul's example to declare the gospel fearlessly, he says in Philippians 1.14. In Paul's view, because Christian identity is fundamentally determined by the self-diffusive and offensive gospel and the rejected Jesus Christ, all believers, without exception, can expect to face the same opposition that their Lord did. It is through the suffering, however, that God has chosen to magnify the glory of His Word and demonstrate the nature of its object, which is the crucified Christ, as Pastor Price mentioned, alluded to uh, 2 Corinthians two weeks ago. Remember what Paul said? I don't want to know anything. I don't want to hear anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. So in the end, the consistent pattern of suffering that we find in the early church, which parallels the sufferings of the apostles, notably Paul's This is a powerful argument for the church's missionary nature. The unwavering hostility of the outside world towards early Christians demonstrates that the dynamic and offensive gospel was progressing effectively through its followers. And it comes at a high cost, a high, high cost. In Revelation 6.11, We get a glimpse of the throne room and the martyrs who shed their blood for the gospel, saying, How long, O Lord, how long till you vindicate our blood? And the answer comes back. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God says, Rest until the number that I have appointed is complete. Revelation 6, 11. Only God knows the final number of the martyrs. And when that is complete, then the end will come. The cost to the gospel may be free to us, but it costs God, His own Son, who was slain, And by His blood, He purchased you, He purchased me, He purchased people everywhere, from every tribe and language and people and nation for God. And He made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever and ever, Revelations 5, 9 to 10. So there will be suffering when we try to get the gospel to the groups and the peoples who need it, who need it. Who, he, who need to hear it. 
In Luke 9, 9, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And he follows up in Luke 14, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As you heard from, from John White just a few minutes ago, missionaries have the same struggles that we do. They have kids that struggle in school. They have problems in their marriages. They have financial problems, just like anyone else. They're not immune to the struggles and the challenges, especially for the new, the new missionaries that are going out in the field, even in this pandemic. We have missionaries going out in the field. Our Southern Baptist Convention just commissioned new ones. We always do. And this pandemic doesn't stop us from sending them out. But they're going out. They're facing terrible, terrible, uh, tremendous struggles and challenges with, with culture shock. Raising their families in strange lands. Yes, in the face of this pandemic. And here at home, we have tremendous, tremendous challenges in our cities with racial problems and racial and cultural issues. We read this morning that the violence in Minneapolis has spiked again. So if we are to reach, if we are to reach this cultural moment and rise up to this cultural moment and reach this generation, which is our responsibility, it will take us getting out of our comfort zones. It will take us to get out of our security, our ease and safety, and yes, involve stress, involve trouble, involve danger, yes. Just the fact of bringing down lunch bags to the tent city involves risk. It takes risks just to walk in a, uh, uh, to be part of a rally. Just this, uh, this last week, uh, my daughter was telling me that uh, one of her former classmates, high school classmates, 20-year-old young man, I think by the name of Gary, um, just, walked, just walked down uh, in West Rogers Park and just an anonymous stranger walks up to him and shoots him in the abdomen, and he dies. And uh, they, just had the, they just had the burial at, at Edgewater Baptist Church, one of our sister churches here in the community. And the parents spoke. The parents spoke of how faithful this young man was. He actually started a Christian club in his high school. So there will always be stress. There will always be danger among us, regardless of where we are. But since the early church, it has always been dangerous, folks. Verse 30, For he, Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Pastor John Piper said that suffering is not only the cost of missions, as we have read already, but suffering is also the means and the reward of missions. 
Piper makes such an insightful connection between that final verse, verse 30, in chapter 2 of Philippians, and similar words that Paul used in describing his own suffering in Colossians 1.24. Don't miss this. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I, Paul, rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Let me read that again. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Paul, are you out of your mind? Paul just said, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I mean, that is borderline blasphemy. What does he mean by that? Filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? How could he possibly lack anything? Get this now. Paul does not mean that he improves upon the merit and the atonement, the atoning worth of Jesus' blood shed on Calvary for you and for me. That's not what he means, so don't read that the wrong way. Well then, what does he mean? I'm glad you asked. There are only two places. These are the only two places in Scripture where the original Greek word for fill up or complete, and the original word for what is lacking are found together in the same verse. Only two places. This is it. Philippians 2, verse 30, and Colossians 1, 24. The context of this verse is that Epaphroditus was sent from the Philippian church over to Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. Epaphroditus risked his life to get there, and Paul extols him for risking his life. Paul tells the Philippians that, Ger- that they should receive such a one with honor because he was sick unto death, and he risked his neck to complete their ministry to him. Here's the key parallel verse. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Or the hundred-year-old Vincent's commentary on Philippians says this, the gift to Paul from from the Philippians was the gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking was the church's presentation of this suffering in person. This was impossible, and Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate, zealous ministry. That's Vincent's commentary. So the picture is of a church that wants to communicate love in the form of money over to Rome, and they can't do it. There's just too many of them to go. 
and it's too far away. And they say, Epaphroditus, represent us and complete, represent us and complete what is lacking in our love. There's nothing lacking in our love except the expression of our love in person there. Take it and communicate our love to Paul. John Piper says, now that's exactly what I think Colossians 1.24 means. Paul's self-understanding of his mission is that there's one thing lacking in the sufferings of Jesus. The love offering of Christ is to be presented in person through missionaries to the peoples for whom he died. And Paul says, I do this in my sufferings. In my sufferings, I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. This means that Christ intends for the Great Commission to be a presentation to the nations of the sufferings of His cross through the sufferings of God's people. That's the way it will be finished. That's the way the task will be finished. If you sign up for the Great Commission, that's what you sign up for, says John Piper. Piper once said, The job is not done in the world that Christ gave us to do, and the mandate is still binding on us today. Yes, even in the face of a pandemic. That's why we speak of unreached people groups. That's why John White and our other missionary partners do what they do, what we do what we do. But the missions is the back-breaking, culture-penetrating, darkness-shattering initial work to penetrate, plant the church, see it flourish, get its own elders, train its own people, evangelize its own networks. That's the task of missions, and it's not over until it's over. That's the reward for the suffering. What's the reward for the suffering experienced in missions? Here's the reward. It's a twofold reward. This life and the next life. In this life, this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24:14. That's on this side of heaven. What's the reward on the other side? It's in Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle John goes on to say that those who suffer for the sake of the gospel will gain a future heavenly inheritance. They hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. As priests, they serve God in His temple in which He will shelter them from scorching heat, spreading His, ta- his, his shelter over them and 
and dwelling with them. He will protect them as their shepherd. They will find refreshment and springs of living water. And there, every tear will be dried up by God Himself. That is the promise that comforts all believers, all believers in their suffering as they await for their coming resurrected Savior. I end with this story to drive the point home. It was five years ago, five years ago, a little over five years ago, ISIS, the Islamic State in Libya, marched out 21 Egyptian Christians. These were Christians from the Coptic Orthodox Church of Egypt. The Islamic State walked out 21 Christian men on a beach, on an empty beach. They were all dressed in orange outfits, and the Islamic soldiers behind them were all dressed in in black. And after the Islamic State released a video, they started the video in which they brutally beheaded all 21 Egyptian Christians who had been previously been kidnapped in Libya, abruptly beheaded in this graphic five-minute video. And the title of the video was a message signed with blood to the nation of the cross. Immediately, the world denounced the murderers and called the Christians martyrs who were killed simply because they were Christians. The Pope jumped in and mentioned that their last words, the words of these Egyptian Coptic Christians, their last words were, Jesus, help me. The Pope said, the blood of our Christian brothers and sisters is a witness that cries out to be heard. They are Christians. Their blood is one and the same. Their blood confesses Christ. Well, one of the brothers, a brother of two of those Coptic martyrs, his name is, was Bashir Kamel, said that he was proud of his brothers, Bashoy and Samuel, who were beheaded. and said that their martyrdom was a badge of honor to Christianity. Kamel went so far as to thank the Islamic State for including their Christian witness in the videos before beheading them. This brother said, ISIS gave us more than we asked when, when they didn't edit out the part when they, where they declared their faith and called upon Jesus Christ for help. ISIS strengthened. ISIS helped us strengthen our faith, this brother said. And the mother's response was, here, here, here's a mother 
to one of those brothers, Kamel recalled his mother's response. My mother, an uneducated woman in her 60s, said she would ask him to enter her house and ask God to open his eyes because he was the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain, that which he cannot lose. And it was the early church father, Tertullian, who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was then and it is now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, save us, Lord. Save our generation entirely from sin. We know Standing here, Lord, sitting here in this worship service, we know that we're righteous only through the righteousness of your Son. And we we pant and we pine for likeness to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are your children, Lord. We should bear your image. Enable us, Lord, Enable us to recognize death, our death unto sin, Lord. And when sin tempts us, Lord, may we be deaf unto its temptation. Deliver us, Lord. Deliver us this day from the invasion as well as the dominion of sin. Grant us to walk as Christ walked on this earth. To live in the newness of your life life of love, life of faith, life of holiness, life of obedience even unto death, Lord. Lord, we abhor this body of death. It's pride, it's envy, it's covetousness, it's meanness expressed, Lord, in our culture today. Forgive us, Lord. Kill these vices within us. Have mercy, Lord, for our unbelief and our backsliding, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for our corrupt and wandering hearts. Lord, when your blessings come, Father God, and when we begin to idolize your very blessings, Lord, set our affections, set our hearts' affections on, on, on you instead of the idols, whether it's our family or friends or wealth or honor positions, titles, Lord. None of that matters. Cleanse us from spiritual adultery. Give us chastity in our hearts, Lord. Purity. Close our hearts to everything but you. Focus our attention on you. Sin is our greatest curse, but let your victory be apparent, Lord, to our consciousness. And let it be displayed, let your victory be displayed in our lives every day as we overcome sin. Lord, help us to always be devoted, confident, and obedient, Lord. Resigned, childlike in our faith and trust in you. To love you with soul, mind, and strength, Lord. To love others as we love ourselves. To be saved from an unregenerate temper. Hard thoughts, Lord, slanderous words, mean words, Lord, unkind manners. Help us to master our tongue, Lord. Keep the door of our lips 
that we might not sin against you. Fill us with grace. Fill us with your abundant grace daily that our lives would be a fountain of sweet water unto you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Before. 